the Christian life is not life on an island, if I can make the joke while being on an island, but that we are called to real, lasting, authentic community in such a way that the world does not know. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is John 17, verses 20 to 21. This is Jesus speaking. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's a reference to you all. That they may, be, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the unity that we are called to have is compared to, is analogous to the unity within the Trinitarian Godhead. Now, in a couple years we're going to go through John and we'll come to that on its own. But you just need to sink in that the relationships we have with one another is analogous to the relationship that the Father has with the Son. But when we look at our relationships, when we look at our community, sadly, most of the time, we are nothing close to that unity. The unity that we are commanded to have. But the question arises... How in the world can we have that unity as a body of Christ? And at the heart of the unity of believers that we are called to is humility. And Paul in our verses today, in our passage today, is going to connect for us a life of humility that cultivates deep, lasting, full community. And so our big idea today, if you're following along in the outline in your bulletin, is this, that true Christian unity comes through humble service. True Christian unity comes through humble service. So let's look at point number one there. If you're following along there, think the same. Let's look at verses one and two of chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul begins this paragraph by asking a rhetorical question. He's saying to the Philippian church, have you ever experienced any benefits from being a believer? Are there any benefits 
that you have experienced from being a part of the Christian community saved by Jesus Christ. So you look there. If you've had any encouragement from Christ, has your relationship with Christ ever given you any encouragement? Any comfort from love? Have you ever experienced love from God or from his people? Any participation in the Spirit? Have you ever had the benefit of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling your heart? Any affection or sympathy? Have you ever felt compassion from God and his people? Now, he's setting them up because that's what a guy like Paul would do. Because the answer is obviously yes. Even if you might try to say no to one of them, you cannot say no to all four of them. (laughs) So he's saying, if this has ever happened to you, and obviously it has, you have benefited from being in relationship with the God of the universe who loves you, and you have benefited from being in relationship with other believers. You cannot deny that. So if you've benefited, and you have, see, he's setting them up. Do you see the setup coming? If, then, look at verse 2, then complete my joy. I want you to think about this, that that we're going to talk about unity, and the unity of the Philippian church is what brings Paul joy. That there, the person who started, who planted this church, who who saw the first converts in Philippi come to Christ, that, that his joy is wrapped up in how they get along as a church. Do you ever think that how you interact with others in our church gives other people joy? But then that also means the flip side is true. <laughs> if there's disunity in the body, we're stealing joy from someone else. How you live affects other people. Even further, how you live with one another affects the joy of others. And so, do we want to be joy givers? or joy stealers. So, complete my joy. And then he gets redundant. Okay, look at, look at look what he does in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He could have said just one of those. Can we all see that? He could have just said, complete my joy by being in one accord or having the same mind. They all, they're all synonyms, right? They all mean the same thing. So why would he repeat it four times? Maybe it's because we are hard-hearted and oftentimes thick-skulled. And Paul wants to make sure that the Philippian church understands what he is saying, and so he tells them four times. It's like when you have kids, and I don't know about your guys' kids or grandkids, you, I mean, maybe you can just tell them to do one thing once, and they are perfect. 
But I've had to tell my a couple times. I've had to tell my kids to do something more than once. Okay, maybe even three times. Maybe. They're not here to defend themselves, so that's as far as I'll go. But you need to see that the repetition is there to get across this idea that this is what God really wants. And he says it a bunch of different times so we get the idea. This is important to God, and because it's important, he says it a lot. But how do we do this? How do we have this unity that he's talking about? Because if you look at every aspect of life, there is always conflict and division. How do we achieve this radical unity that God is calling us to do to be a beacon of light in a dark, dark world? Because let, let, me, let me tell you this. Here's a conviction I have. This unity is only possible for believers. There is nothing big enough that connects us to give us this level of unity. In fact, in other places in the Bible, it talks about how we are bound together by the Holy Spirit. Well, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you cannot be bound together by Him. There is no political view, no understanding of economics, no color of our skin that can unite us in the way that the gospel unites the church. But what does this look like? What does this look like in our everyday lives to be united in such a radical way that the unity actually preaches the gospel to a dying world? It looks like verses 3 and 4. So not only do we think the same, we're to think of others. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The church is not a corporate ladder. The church is not a place for consumers. Look at what we're not to do. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing to get mine and leave everybody else in the dust. Now, the fact that he begins with telling us not to do that should tell us that that is our natural bent. My natural bent in life is to get mine and who cares about everybody else? Let me give you a quick example of this. Before I was married, someone once told me that to really understand how selfish you are, you need to become a parent. And here's why. Here's one example why that's true. Adam 
my youngest, will not always sleep through the night. And sometimes he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's hungry or needs a diaper change. And he cries. I'm in the bed, sleeping. I wake up and my first thought is, I want to continue sleeping. (laughs) Even though this defenseless little baby (laughs) is just hungry. But my first thought is, let's hope he goes back to bed and I'm just going to sleep more. (laughs) Now, for all of you concerned, I do get up and feed him and change him. Let's not, that's how rumors get started at church. But but when I actually think about it objectively, it's really selfish. When I think, okay, I've got a defenseless baby who can't feed themselves, who just wants to be fed, and I'm mad because I got woken up from my sleep. I mean, when, when I think about it objectively, that's, that is really selfish. And what the Bible tells us is that our natural bent as sinners saved by grace is to be selfish. And so we need to kill that part of us. We need to kill that selfishness in our lives. How do we do that? We kill selfishness by caring for others. Look at verse 3 again. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You will never hear that in a commercial. Why? Why would you? Because, you know, my life is here to get mine and forget everybody else. But the Bible is completely opposite. You are supposed to consider the needs of others more than your own needs. Now, some may object to this and say, what if I I take care of others so much that I'm actually hurting myself? That's an objection I hear. Let me say three things about that. First of all is this, that that is the exception, not the rule. And as we see time and time again throughout the scriptures, we cannot make the exceptions the rule. The rule must stay the rule, and exceptions stay the exception. And again, our natural bent is to think we're the exception every time. Isn't it amazing that you're always the exception to the rule? I know I am. (laughs) I must be really exceptional, that I'm always, in my own mind, the exception to the rule. But again, the rule is consider the needs of others more than your own needs. Secondly, the Bible has a category for this idea of you feel overwhelmed in caring for others, and and there is the biblical idea of rest. But the idea with rest in the Bible, and the idea of Sabbath, as you see throughout the scriptures, is, is a recharge time. And what I worry about is when I see people, they take a rest time, and that's great. You know, for example, after an elder will serve for six years and then has a mandatory year off as a time of rest. But the idea is, is that after you rest, you get back in the game. 
And sadly, I see too many times of people taking rest but don't get back in the game. Or another thing is, is you take rest and you get in another game. Maybe, maybe your ministry just needs to change, but the change of ministry is not stopping ministry. And so maybe God's called you to something different. Thirdly, here's something the Bible, I think, rightly understands, that naturally you will take care of yourself. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So what is that saying? That's saying that you have that natural bent to take care of yourself. And so in some ways, you don't need to be told or commanded to take care of yourself. But what you do need to be told is to take care of others, because that is not your natural bent. And to help us further understand, we have verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So again, there's not a denial that you need to take care of yourself. But again, usually we don't need to be told that. Or that's not the hard part. The hard part is taking care of others. So we take care of others to build this unity. And what do we need to do it? We need humility. Look back at verse 3. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is the fuel of unity-making service. Let me give you a quote from a, a Chinese pastor whose, whose name was redacted from what I was reading for uh, security purposes. But he said this, I came to realize that the church is not mine, the church is Christ's. I am his servant, I shepherd the church. I should humble myself. I should also love my wife, and I should minister to my wife. I should love my co-workers and learn from my co-workers and deal with them graciously. I discovered that the church needs cooperation. There should be no individualism in the process of evangelizing. Jesus Christ is using his church we should start anew to serve him. In that way, God's word will prosper, but I will diminish. He was repenting of a selfish ambition and was finding humility in not just having people serve him, but in him serving others. So my question, the question to give to you, to, to live your life by, because this, again, the unity of the church is essential to our lives. And it begins with this question. What does that person need? 
And the good news is that this question works for anybody, whether they're a believer or not. So you look around our church. You look at your friends. What do my friends need? What do the other people in my church, what do they need? And the glorious thing is this works for your neighbors too. What do my neighbors need? Probably they need Jesus. They need to hear about him. Did you ever think that you not evangelizing someone could be a selfish action? Because isn't it what they need? And shouldn't we think of their needs above our own? What does that person need? It's a hugely transformative question. And it changes how we live. It has to. And that's what we're called to. But if we don't have humility, we won't do it. So how do we cultivate humility? How do we get this, this taproot of service and unity in the church? How do we cultivate this very, very godly idea of humility? Well, point number three. So not only do we, are we called to think the same and to think of others, we're to think like Jesus. Let me start reading in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that mind connection throughout this, this whole passage. To have the same mind as believers, to be united as believers, we need the mind of Jesus. So what is the mind of Jesus? Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me talk about that. What does that mean? Because he was God and is God, he didn't need to steal anything from God. Let me contrast this with Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. This is the serpent talking to Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, this is that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The first sin of Adam and Eve wasn't eating an apple. First of all, the fruit probably wasn't even an apple to begin with. Secondly, they ate because they wanted to be wise like God. They wanted to be God in place of God. The picture of 
pridefulness. Jesus had no such pride. He was sent by the Father, and he humbled himself and obediently took on that mission. And so there was no pride in him about leaving the glories of heaven to come down to earth. One uh, New Testament professor puts it this way, the eternal son did not think of his status as God as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve. And precisely because he was one with God, he made himself nothing and gave, gave, gave. Jesus wasn't in it for himself. He was in it for us and to be obedient to his Father. But how did he do that? How did he humble himself? Look at verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. A picture of humility, the humility that we are supposed to, to model, that we are supposed to live in our lives, begins with the idea that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down and was born as a baby. He left the glories and perfection of heaven to become a baby whose diaper needed changing. As one of the hymns puts it, he left his father's throne above. And he came down to live as a peasant in Palestine. He gave up a lot. I mean, that's one of the biggest understatements I will ever say from the pulpit. The eternal Son of God came and lived as a person. He gave up the riches of heaven to be the son of a carpenter in Israel. Again, this is totally the opposite of getting, getting, getting. This is giving, giving, giving. I mean, would you ever make that trade? <laughs> You're on the throne in heaven. <laughs> you know what I'd rather have? <laughs> I'd rather be a peasant in Israel. That would be awesome. <laughs> no. But again, he's giving up to give to others. He's not looking to his own needs, but to the needs of others. Now, some have questions about what does it mean that he emptied himself, or some translations made himself nothing. One writer has put it that the idea here is that he's given up his rights. 
So an example of this would be in Matthew 26, where Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He gave up that right to use his divinity for his own good because if he did call 12 legions of angels down to save himself, he wouldn't have died on the cross for our sins. So he gave up that right. He, he emptied himself, made himself nothing for us to give. Because here's the thing. If Jesus saves himself, he cannot save you. But he had the ability to save himself. You know, on the cross where they're saying, get off the cross if you're really the Son of God. He could have. But he chose not to. Because he was serving us. As Mark chapter 10 says, Jesus speaks, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The eternal Son of God comes and is born. He deserves to be served and worshipped like a king. <laughs> but what did he do instead? He died on a cross for you and me. He could have demanded to be king. He could have demanded worship. But what did he do? He humbly submitted to the will of the Father and died so you and I wouldn't have to. And that leads us to the next mark of humility, that not only did he become human, did he, that he was born as a baby, but, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Consider the needs of others more significant than your own needs. The picture of that for us is the death of Jesus Christ for you and for me. He paid the price for our need. He died for our sin, not his sin. His, his death was not so that he would be forgiven. <laughs> His death was for the needs of others, us. He had a humiliating death to fulfill the needs of others. This is the pattern for our humility, that we give up so as to give to others and provide for them. And let me tell you that this puts it in perspective. Because here's a natural question. Jesus gave up his life. What am I willing to give up? Because when I read this, I say to myself, everything I can give comes up short. <laughs> I cannot give more than Jesus did. But this is given as an example to us of how to be humble servants of each other. 
And then we get to verses 9 to 11. Not only does 9 through 11 finish the story of Jesus, but it gives us hope that when we are humble, God will protect and provide for us. Because here's the problem. Here's what my mind thinks. My mind says, if I humble myself, people are going to take advantage of me. I need to protect me because if I do that, they will hurt me or take advantage of me. Right? Isn't that what we naturally think? It's very normal. I think it all the time. But there's hope in verses 9 to 11. Let me read that. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do those verses tell us about Jesus? That he won in the end. That even though he humbled himself as a servant and died a peasant's death, God exalted him to the name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Jesus did not lose when he died. And his victory was guaranteed by God who exalted him after Jesus humbled himself. So what does that mean for us? When you humble yourself and serve others in a way that God has called you to, you can know that God will exalt you. Now that may happen here, but it will definitely happen in eternal life. That God will, in a sense, reward you for your humility. That this is a part of what it means when, when we die and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Heaven is repayment for being a servant on earth. As it says in, in 1 Peter, that God will exalt the humble. God is on your side. God will protect you. God will provide for you. So you don't need to be afraid of humbly serving others. Because God knows what you're doing. And he will exalt you. You don't have to exalt yourself. You don't have to be grasping and, and straining for glory. One day God will give it to you for being his servant. So you don't need to be afraid of humility. I think that's what it is. I think we're afraid of humility. But we don't need to be afraid. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let me close here with three quick applications. First one is this, that, that we need to guard the unity of this church. 
It is obvious from the first two verses that unity in the body of Christ is of first importance to God and therefore us. Again, you go to that repetition in verse 1 of how many different ways, sorry, verse 2, how many different ways he talks about us being unified as a community, as a body of Christ. So we need to guard that because Jesus wants it, and so should we. Number two, we need to provide for the needs of others. Don't be weary of doing what is good. And and let me say this, that it's not an accident that in a book that is so much about joy that the same book has one of the largest passages on humility. And so what does that tell me? That humility is a source of joy. Because here's, here's what I've found to be true, that when I humbly serve others, I am never ashamed of that work. Because when I humbly serve others, that work always lasts and is always found to be good. There are some things that we are all ashamed of and regret, but serving others never is. It is always the right thing to do. And it is a source of joy. Again, I've said this before. If you're not experiencing joy in your life, one of the things that might be missing is you serving others. Because if you get, 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 that won't give you joy. But Jesus found joy in giving, 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 and so can we. Lastly, cultivate humility. That this is such a godly aspect of our lives. And we do that by following the example of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, you see that he gave up his rights and his benefits for others. You see that he voluntarily served others. And you see, ultimately, that he died for others. Gave up everything he had for the good of others. And here's your question. What should I do for that person? It begins with, what did Jesus do for me? And if you answer the second question correctly, it'll help you answer the first one. (laughs) Let me close with this. I want to read to you a vivid picture of when Jesus modeled servant humility. John chapter 13. Read you verses 1 to 10. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to them, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If we serve one another, we are blessed because we are following the example of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, that you would, through your Spirit, cultivate humility in our lives that we would have the same mind as Christ Jesus who gave up so much for us that we would give for others. And God, that we would not only look to our needs but also to the needs of others. And through that, that you would unify this church and this body of Christ. God, give us a heart to help, to serve as we have been served by Jesus and that we would do as he would do, and that we would follow his humble example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.